Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go? Today we are in Riverton, Wyoming at the Wind River Heritage Center. And just walking through the doors, this place looks absolutely amazing. I think we're in for a treat today. We are with Iva, our guide. And then when we go to the Wax Museum part, we're going to have Harold as our guide. So you're going to get a couple of different guides today. And we will get started here looking at some of what's going on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your museum? Well, it, it was started by Jake Coral. Jake was a, a mountain man and trapper his whole life. And how long was his life? Because it was quite extensive yes, from what I understand. He was born in 1914, and he died in 2013. He was just a few months away from, or a month away, from his 99th birthday. Wow. And he trapped the whole year be before he died. Really? That's amazing. Yes. And he, when did he start trapping? When he was six years old. When he was six years old. So when we walk in here and see all of this display with mounted animals, I mean, we've got mounted everything. We've got full mounted elk, buffalo, coyotes, wolves, antelope. We have every large animal in Wyoming mounted here. Really? All of the game animals. A lot of the smaller animals uh, we have here too. Jake shot most of these, or his son, and um, my husband is, is Gerald Coral, and him and I did the mounting on that. You've done all your own taxidermy work. We did our tax, yeah. I did the tanning, he, did, he does the taxi work. That's amazing. And you did the tanning in-house. Yes. We just were at Merlin's Hideout in Thermopolis. Thermopolis. And he does tanning also. Now, mm -hmm. do you have like commercial tanning? You do brain tanning? No. What do you do? Um, ours, we use com uh, chemicals, but uh, our tanning was just to do mounts so it isn't as soft okay. and pliable as what most of the tanning is. Okay. And then do you, you stretch over pre-made molds or did you make your own? Um, you buy pre-made forms. Um, they're out of a real solid um, foam type material. And then when you want them in an action form, you have to cut them and, and remodel them. Okay. And so, so let's go ahead and look at some of these and, and talk a little bit about them. The, you've got a lot of small animals from around here too. Yeah. I see a badger. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, the, we have the... Uh, Animals that are harvested every winter uh, from, for buyers. And okay. um, so Jake, that's how Jake made his living. And, and so he was, he was trapping badger, beaver, fox, coyotes, uh, mink. Pine marten. Pine marten. Wow. Yep. He, he did it all. Look at that. And in the, wind, in the fall, he would guide. Okay. He would guide guide hunters. Trappers. Yeah. Um, so that's he, he. That was his whole business. Okay. That's how they made their living. 
You've got several snakes here that are they're, they're you, all, now, they're all the diamondbacks. Jerry did not do snakes, fish, or birds. Okay. They're a different type of mounting, and he did not care for them. <laughs> so the bison was uh, that we have was a ranch race bison. Um, and Jake got a, a special license. They had three of them, and they hunted them. Took him three days out on the prairie to find him. Wow. He was, uh, 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 they purchased him to raise money for the fire department. Okay. And then they drew lots. Okay. And we have the, the wolves. Now, now, you've got two wolves here. Are both of the, are either one of these native Wyoming wolves? No. This one here is Alaskan, and that's a Canadian. Uh, the Canadian wolf is the one that they put back into Wyoming, that they the reintroduced. Re yeah. Right. These two were, were harvested before we had wolves in Wyoming, after okay. they were all gone. Yeah, because uh, the last one was, was taken, I think, like in 1948 or yeah, something. I'm not for sure. And most of the Wyoming, native Wyoming wolves were gone. They do have yeah. a pelt that we saw when we were over at the Jim Gatchell Museum of a native Wyoming wolf. And they, they look different and some yeah. of that. But They're a lot smaller. They right. were. Yeah. And I was wondering if either one of and those. The Brutus, our, our grizzly, was a problem bear. And the game and fish uh, euthanized him and uh, gave, us, gave him to us to mount. And he's on loan. So if we close the doors, he goes back to the game and fish. Okay. Because they are protected animals. Yes. And, and, we, and then you've got a little fish display. Actually, it's a big fish display because there's big fish in it. Yeah, yeah there's a uh, lake trout and brook trout and a splake. Okay. Which is, and then we have the turkeys and the grouse, uh, geese. These are all water animals. A weasel. The beaver and... Uh, Muskrat. Okay, and a bobcat. Yeah. And both whitetail and a huge. Oh, around the corner. Oh, we'll go around the corner. Yeah. Okay. This is our, our, our bobcat and our weasel family. The uh, uh, ermine is white in the winter and turns brown in the summer, and he's called a, a weasel then. Yeah. He's got two names. Yeah. So you never know which one you're looking at unless he's white or brown. <laughs> That's right. White, he's an ermine. <laughs> It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the few that has. This is our elk. We have a, a bull elk and a cow elk. Uh, the, they were called Wapiti by the natives. So they have two names, too. And these are all full mounted. Uh, everything that, that we're talking about here is a full mount. You get to see the actual size of the animal and the colors and, and what they look like in the wild. Like little bears. This is our little uh, porcupine. We, uh, we've got him set up so that you can actually see how many that they have in their body. The quills? Yeah. And we've been to a couple different museums that have had quill work by uh, yeah. the Indians. And, the, oh, you've have, got some on display here. I just have two little pieces. I would love to have more, but at this time we, we don't. We have a lot of beadwork from the natives. Right. Um, these are bighorn sheep. And you've got three of them, and they are very nice-looking sheep. Boy, the, the taxidermy on these is just really, really nice. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry, well Jerry made all of his rock, 
So it's it's not as heavy as what you think. It's pretty light. Oh, and what did he make the rock out of? It's a secret. It's what? It's a secret. A secret. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it looks like real yeah. rock. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a kit fox and a bobcat, and then our black bear. And a hornet's nest. That's a nice-sized hornet's nest. And it is real. We, we picked it up down the river. Those are kind of hard to keep together, too. They didn't really have one, I don't think. They never measured him. He's kind of non-typical. Yeah, yeah. he's a non-typical drop-time deer. Um, they're rare in this area, and it's a hereditary, so the bucks pass it on. Okay, and when she's talking drop time, most deer horns go up above their head, but this one's got horns that come down, like yeah, got, down towards its neck. It's got two tines that go down, yeah, and it's called an atypical because it isn't set up in the same pattern. Most mule deer's uh, horns come up and then they branch off like a tree. Uh huh. Um, and there's, they don't have those many uh, tines. This okay. is this is a white tail, and uh, he's his horns are different because his horns come forward and they all all the brand the tines go off one thing. Right, and that's that's more what people see back east and some of that. We do uh, have white tail. We here. have white tail and mule deer here in Wyoming. Right, quite a few. Um, some places have one or the other. They usually don't get along together very well. They will fight for territory. Right. And then yeah. we have the the, wolf, uh, the coyotes here. We have three different colors in Wyoming. We have a black, and then the main gray color, and we there's kind of a dust colored one. And that's kind of interesting yeah. because I don't know that I've ever seen the black and the dust colored ones. The, they're quite a bit rarer. Uh, the dust in Nebraska, there's quite a few. Huh. But in Wyoming, that's the only one that we ever saw. I was going to say, I've yeah. never seen a dust-colored one. The black, and when she says dust-colored, she's talking more along the color of your golden lab. Yeah. And, and in fact, they look a lot hair-wise, kind of like the golden lab, but they've got the coyote face. It's very triangular. And the black one, I've never seen a black one either. This is our cougar, mountain lion, or puma. They all... Say the same thing, yeah. And then our and he's about ready to get himself a white-tailed deer. That's a he's, they, he's been trying for years. Has he? Yeah. It's just kind of frozen in. He's frozen in time. Yeah, um, th this building was put up eleven years ago, and uh, he's been that way for eleven years. Eleven years. Yeah. And we have our two different types of skunks. And then the the pronghorn, which everybody in Wyoming knows familiar with, a lot of them call them an analyze. The proper name is pronghorn. And there again, there's some interesting features with the pronghorn. As long yes. as we're here, they've got hollow hair, yes. which uh, it keeps, insulates them, uh, keeps them warm or cold from it, whatever. And they've also it. got horns versus antlers, which means that the horns are made up of hair. Uh, they're they're uh, uh, like your fingernails, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're hair. And when they they do shed, but the sheds are are not worth any money. Um, and they do have a core horn inside. 
Now, do they yes, shed every year? Every year. They do? Yes. Okay. The, the moose and the elk and the deer all shed, and they're antlers. Right. And an antler is more of a bone growth than what it is a, a hair. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the bighorn sheep, they never lose their, they're called horns. Yeah. They're, again, they're like the uh, antelope horn structure. And this is really cool. I'm seeing a certificate here from Boone and Crockett. So that means this antelope that you have on display here is a record holder. Yes. And he is he's a he's really certified. nice looking antelope. And then we must have some pictures. This is Jake himself here. Okay. And they have the 1838 rendezvous every year at, during 4th of July. And that's where when that was taken. Okay, we were just over at the Mountain Man Rendezvous in Pinedale where they held six of the rendezvous and then they were talking about having moved it over the mountain for the last uh, couple of years, hoping to keep the Pacific fur traders from, from coming on across, but they said it didn't work so well. <laughs> it was a big party. And when is this rendezvous held? Is, is it going to be held this year? Um, or does... From all I know, they are. It's the 1st of July. Okay. Through the that week, that first first through the sixth or so, and then um, we have some paintings for sale that people have have donated to us, um, and we have the the beaded horse skull is Ooh, my favorite. That is pretty. The We're looking at a horse skull here that has. It, it's got it, beads. It, yeah, the uh, the gentleman that made this drilled holes. Oh. Uh, really close together and put a bead design in there. So those are seed beads. They're kind of a flat bead. They're they're the beads that the they do all of their beading um, on their moccasins and stuff. Okay, that is just really neat. We've got a, a horse skull that has all kinds of designs. There's a turtle in a circle. There's a star. There's lots of uh, scroll work, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, it is just really, really pretty. The symbols on there each have meanings. And we have the, the writing, so you can... Can I picture that? Yeah. Okay. And then you've got a, a case here that's got a lot of different skulls in it. Grizzly bear and this, raccoon. And this is the grizzly bear skull that was on the one that we... On Brutus over there. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then we have a, a large arrowhead collection. Yes, you do. Uh, one gentleman told me we were wrong. Those are spear points. He <laughs> says arrowheads are are real small, and the bigger ones are spear points. Okay. And so would they put those like on the end of an atlatl also? Uh, the bigger ones, the, the little arrowheads, the small ones, um, are for the. Both. Okay. And we had talked about an atlatl in our discussion when we were at, I think, the Jim Gatchell Museum. They had an atlatl there that was a small one, kind of set up to show how it throws. But it's an extension of your arm, kind of like a tennis ball thrower that you have for your dog, all except they launched a spear from that, which gave them extra trajectory and, and distance. distance. Yes. That's and then you've got traps. This is, now, this is Jake's area. Um, when we were buying furs, that was his um, sign. Okay. So it's put in here, and this is just kind of his family and some of the history and some of the stuff that he used. He doesn't look like a character at all. No. 
He never met a man that he didn't like, or a woman. Um, he was friendly with everybody. He knew, uh, I think, three different languages. And he happened to go through the third grade. They, the reason he didn't go more schooling because he was trapping, and he would trap skunks. Okay. And when when the school warmed up, they would kick him out. <laughs> I'll bet they would. <laughs> and I I always thought when he was talking that if he didn't trap a skunk, he'd probably find a dead one to roll in just so he wouldn't have to go to school. <laughs> And then a pair of badger moccasins. Boy, those are cool. Jake had bypass surgery done, and they took the uh, arteries out of his legs, and he was always cold. So Jerry and I built those for him. He didn't wear them outdoors because, you know, of course they would get deteriorate fast. Right. But he used them for slippers. Well, and he had to, if that was the case, he had to have uh, really had some warm boots of some sort yes. because all of your trapping is done in the winter time. Yep. That's when the pelts are the thickest and the pelts are the nicest. That's the only time that you can get money for pelts. Right. Is when they're prime, what they say prime. And those are usually what, January, February, and March? Um, or do they start getting what they called rubbed about that yeah. time? The fox rub first. They're the first ones to prime up. And um, um, October? October, maybe November. November. I'm, I'm not on it for t- sure. And when we refer to rubbed, that is that is because of mating and the males. Well, not only that, but in the spring everything sheds. All, right. all horses and cattle and everything, and that's what they are is shedding for their new coat. Okay. And and then the pelts aren't worth as they're much not, because they're, not, they're they're thinner. And, yeah. They're they're not worth anything when they start rubbing. Right, and you know, they their value goes down because the only they want the prime for the coats and the other stuff that they use. Okay, wow. And he's got um, over two hundred traps, antique traps. They aren't traps that he used; he collected them. Okay. So he's got. Um, and you've got some big ones, some small ones. Most of these are leg hold traps, aren't they? Well, around the corner, there's Kona. There's Bigelows, Kona Bears, uh, the tri- killing traps. Right. And some jump traps. Um, and what are the Bigelows? Are they like a Kona Bear? Yeah, they are. Okay. And there wasn't very many of them made. Um, so I've never seen one. The, the reason there wasn't is because when they come out with them, they would go off when you were trying to set them. Okay. And then when the animal come, when they were set, they wouldn't go off. So, oh. so they were poorly made. Kind of a frustrating trap. Now, when we're talking about Kona bears or the Vigalos uh, and talking about a killing trap, the leg hold traps, when you open them up, they've got a spring on them, and they, they lay out as what most people probably have seen when they see a, a trap is a leg hold trap. And the animal steps in that while they're getting their lure, yeah. and it catches them by the leg and doesn't damage any of the fur uh, right. other than right there on that particular leg. Now, the Kona bears and, and what we're seeing here with these Bigelow, they can be like two box uh, or two squares that you fold opposite of each other. When the animal comes through that trap, that you hit a trigger, and that trap unsprings and catches the animal, usually by the neck and by the waist, and then squeezes them to where they end up dying. That's right. 
And so when you check these traps, you end up with animals that are that dead. Are dead. Mm-hmm. And those usually don't mess up the hides too terribly bad either because it's pretty much an instantaneous yeah, death. Yeah. Um, actually, most of those are used for beaver. The conibears? Yeah. I uh, had some conibears that I used for skunk and for did you? Uh, raccoon, and mm-hmm. it did a fine job on both of those. Yeah, it will. Other And, and skunks didn't usually spray when they were caught in the conibears for some reason, but... Uh, then you, Jake always loved it when he caught a skunk because every animal is attracted to skunk smell. So when he caught a skunk, he just used it as bait and he'd catch a bunch. Really? Yes. And so most animals like that skunk smell. And they must. <laughs> that must explain why the, why, why the dogs come home smelling like that quite often. <laughs> now, this is, this is our oldest trap. Um, it was uh, hand-forged, and they think it was 1780. Wow. When it was made. Um, our smallest or is probably this one. It's a little muskrat trap. And then we go all the way up to the grizzly bear trap. And that's a big trap. It's a huge trap. I can't even imagine trying to set that. These springs are... Uh, kind of rounded in a v-shape i guess you could say and you had to step on those in order to get them to compress so that you could open the jaws up well actually you could not do that with these okay they have what they call a c-clamp okay that they would put on the track the springs and and tighten it down okay and And the trap the trap itself is like probably what 12 or probably 14 or 16 inches uh wide and then when you opened it up, it would have a circle that would be probably 18 inches round. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good? I'm not very good with measurements. measurements. But then after you put the C-claps, you'd put this on. And okay. then, you could, then you could open it up and set the trap, and then you just slide this off. And if you, if you ever got your arm caught in that, you would not be happy. Nope. Um, they are outlawed now. You can't use them. And most movies, you see men stepping in them and, and getting their leg caught. But people that use these grizzly traps, they set what's called a covey. Uh-huh. And it's, it, they would put twigs and stuff. So it was a kind of a square where the trap was inside. So you would have to step inside the covey to step in the trap. It's very obvious. Right. But the animals are attracted in there, of course, with a uh, scent. A lure, lure of some sort. Or, yeah. Okay. So, and then we have this really unique one here. It's a man trap. Okay. we got to show you this before you go on. You're not talking about the one here where the guy's got gold in his pants. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would is, be a nice lure. That, the crane jumpers are going to be shot in that one. <laughs> the, the Wyoming Prospectors Association set that up for us. And it depicts that South Pass, okay. where they did all of the mining. And we just did a we just did a a podcast up at South Pass. Did you? And yeah. Very interesting place. Yes. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to go see that. That is a really neat museum. So, and this is right on the way to or from. I mean, if you're yes. coming from the east, uh, this museum would be at on your way to there. And if you're coming from the west. Heading to Yellowstone, uh, Riverton's right on the way, and, and this museum would be a great place to stop. Yeah, there's a number of 
of things, great things to look at in, in Riverton area. And we'll talk about that later. We need to talk a little bit about okay. the area and some of the things to see and do here. But this is our English man trap. Um, there was an English lord that had come, Jake um, guided for him. Uh-huh. And he was so impressed with Jake and knew that he was a collector. And so he sent him this. It came from his family, and it was hand-forged in England. And it was used by English lord barons to keep poachers off of their land. And if you can see it, it's as big as a, uh, as a bear trap. And it's got a boot in it with a bone sticking out. <laughs> so obviously somebody uh, was... Was in there once, Was huh? in there trespassing. Yeah. Yes. So wow. it, it, it's unbelievable that they would, one person would do that to another person. But they, they didn't even want them to catch their little bunny rabbits. So. Now here you've got one of the C-clamps that's attached to... This is actually uh, an original C-clamp. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess they say those are one of the most valuable things you can get because they got destroyed or right. lost. Left behind. Yeah. Or, yeah. And this was a, this was a, a, a bear. The, a, the Bringoff family uh, was having bear trouble, and so they, that's a hand-forged trap. And it's even got their name stamped yes. into it. It was in 1918. And even the uh, chain was handmade. Was hand forged. Yeah. Wow. He was a great forger. You've got some nice traps in here. Really nice traps. He has one of the largest trap collections that I know of. Really? Yeah. When when he passed away, Jerry, uh, my husband, he got a book and went through for to find what we had. And uh, he contacted some trap dealers and uh, so he's more knowledgeable now than he was. Right. Yeah. Huh. So. And then you've got a little wrench collection. Yeah. It's, and nail collection. Okay. So, so that's about all we have in this area. Um, this is really nice. And then uh, six years ago, the Thermopolis Wax Museum closed down. And they had no place to go. And so they come and talk to, to Jake and Lou Deal. Lou Deal was this, the other partner in this project. Okay. Lou was the man that took care of the money. He was the behind-the-scenes person. Uh, very, very important. Jake was the PR man. Okay. And it worked very well for them together. Well, cool. And so now you've got the wax museum. Here. Uh, yeah. Uh, where did they it come from before? I know that Thermopolis, Thermopolis bought it from someplace. Uh, it originally came from Jackson. Okay. And then when th then it went to Thermopolis, and then it, it came here. And where does so. the teddy bear museum go that Thermopolis had? Do you know that? I I don't. I went through this years ago, and and they had a teddy bear museum and a wax museum. They had both. And so then you, that whole building complex just kind of closed down. Yeah. Well, the the big problem with these type of things is it's not county or, or, or state owned. So we rely on donations uh, and the income we get from admission to keep our doors open. And your admission's not very high. No, we charge $5 a person or if it's family, 10 yeah, that's really $10 reasonable. at the most. 
And yeah. to be able to, you know, if, if somebody's wanting to see the wild animals in Yellowstone and stuff, this display right here shows you all the animals and what you're looking That's right. at. That's why and what you have the possibility of seeing and you'd be able to identify yeah. just from from being able to walk through here. That's why Jake set this up, because he says, I was raised around the, the wild animals. They're getting less and less. And he says, I want the youth to see the animals. So we get uh, a lot of school children come through here. That we do tours for nothing for them. Uh, the, the fourth grade is the, be- the best because that's when they study the mountain man. And the guy up at, at South Pass kept talking about his fourth grade classes coming through also. So, it, yeah. Yeah. And so we don't, we don't charge any of the schools. We get school, all of the schools around here. Uh, we, you know, in some of, all over the state that come through. Wow. A lot of times we'll split them up in groups and then we'll do part, break for lunch. They'll bring their sack lunches. And we have a space here if the weather's bad, outside if it's good, for them to eat. Cool. And then they come back in and we finish tours. Okay. So now are we headed to the wax museum yes. part? And Harold will take over and for Harold's going to pick up and uh, give us our tour through there. So how are you doing today, Harold? Oh, pretty good. Good. Well, many of these pictures here that you see were donated to uh, Trapper Jake and the museum by family, friends, relatives, even some business acquaintances, uh, such as... These paintings here. Yeah, these are some wildlife paintings. Of You've got paintings of some antelope, some deer, a picture of Jake, a painting of Jake, a couple paintings of Jake. And then over here on the other side, you've got a picture of a covered wagon. Uh, uh, that's a, a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, that's a jigsaw puzzle. Okay, and we've got a picture up here of a skeleton horse and a skeleton, a couple of skeletons and a steer head that they're all kind of placed in the old saloon and they call that one the end of the trail starvation cold and disease so yeah and, then, and those were uh uh by uh trying to remember uh i think Henry one of Correll, yeah says, uh, one of uh and then you got a picture, a picture over here of uh, a hand cart yeah, that's the Mormon uh, handcarts. Mormon handcarts, and then it won a Custer's Last Stand. Yeah, the, that, that's a pretty what, famous painting. Yeah, it is. It's one of those that was started out in uh, all saloons, and and here's Big Nose George, our firm, famous ladies of first in Wyoming, and this one here is always recognized as end of the trail or trail's end. Right, with the Indian kind yeah. of bowed down, with his spear and his horse kind of bowed down. Yeah. Too. Now you got a picture of Big Nose George. Is this a, that looks, oh, that's a wax. Yes, it is. It is. And so we're going to see this in here. Ah, uh, yes, you will. Okay. Yeah, Big Nose George is an is a interesting Wyoming story. Yeah, he oh, is. wow. He is our biggest, well, he is our most favorite as far as I know. And right here you have our, the list of the bison parts that were used by the Native Americans. He, oh, and they will tell you all that they used and what they were used for. And you've and, always heard the story that they used every part of the buffalo. Yes. And here they've got like uh, the hooves, feet, and mm-hmm. dew claws. They say they that, would make glue, rattles, and spoons. The chips, the buffalo chips, you've got fuel and diaper powder. 
They really used it for diaper powder. It is absorbent. Really? That's interesting. And the blood, they made soups, puddings, and paints. Uh, what was the bones. blood? They had fleshing tools, pipes, knives, arrowheads, shovels, splints, sleds, saddle trees, war clubs, scrapers, quirts, awls. This is just amazing because, like I said, I've always heard that they used every single part. And here you have all the different parts listed and, and what they were actually used for. That's a really neat uh, display there or, or, or a list of, of yeah. things. And this here is a display of the bison hunt. Uh, when they first tar started hunting the bison, they usually chased them off foot. Uh -huh. And they chased them off cliffs and uh, bluffs. And later, when the horse was reintroduced in this area in the 1820s, or not, 1840s, uh, when they were first here, they were small animals and they were hunted to extinction by the Native Americans. Okay. And the her herds that we have nowadays are those that were uh, descendant from the Spanish herds that were brought over by the Spanish. Okay. And in this wax, uh, what do they call these displays? Uh, I guess displays. In this display, you've got a, a Native American riding on a paint horse with his spear coming after a buffalo. Yes. Yeah. Now, are you Native American? Uh, yes, I am. And what tribe? Uh, on my mother's side, I'm Northern Rapo. That's the tribe I'm enrolled in. And my father was a Lakota. Was a Lakota. Okay. And the, and the Northern... Northern Arapaho. The Northern Arapaho. That is what the reservation is here around well, Riverton, or well, around Riverton it is the Northern Arapaho near Lander and Fowaski area. That's uh, Eastern Shoshone. Eastern Shoshone. Okay. Cool. And and Riverton or or the the reservation here is the only one in Wyoming. We're not one of the states that have like uh, Montana or no, New this, Mexico. This is the only one. This is the only one. And right here we have the Voyage of Discovery. In 1804, Jefferson commissioned Lewis and Clark to explore the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, it was supposed to take them a year and a half to do the exploration, but it took them closer to two to two and a half years because they were also asked to find a waterway to the Pacific Ocean. Okay. And this depicts Lewis and Clark in Sacagawea? Uh, yes, and... Sacagawea did not start out on the, at the beginning. When they got to a Mandam camp, which is located at the present site of Bismarck, North Dakota, that's when they encountered the French-Canadian Charbonneau. Okay. And he was married to Sacagawea. And then where's Sacagawea buried? Well, it depends upon which person you're talking to in the, which state. Uh, the people in North Dakota say she's buried there but all of us in Wyoming know that she's buried at Fort Washington. Okay. That's, that's the point I was trying to make, that, that Wyoming does claim the, the burial place of Sacagawea. Okay. And who do we have? And this is William Ashley. William Ashley. He's the one okay. that you were interested in. Uh, he is the one that started the rendezvous. In 1822, he put an advertisement asking for 100 men to come west to do some trapping for him and his American Fur Company. Two years later, he came west to find out why it was taking them so long to get the supplies from the mountains, or not the supplies, but the furs 
from the mountains to St. Louis. After seeing that problem, he attempted to bring the supplies from St. Louis to the mountain man. And, okay. And, and that's what the rendezvous were, is, is the supply train coming and, and, yeah, and they held goods. Yeah, in 1825, that's when they held their first rendezvous on Henry's Fork on the Green River near the Wyoming-Utah border. Okay. Cool. And this display, we've got Ashley sitting at a, at a trade table with a, a Kentucky rifle, it looks like, uh, percussion, and there's some furs and moccasins and mirrors and beads and all kinds of different trade items, traps. Uh, if you listen to our podcast on the Museum of the Mountain Man, uh, we talk quite a bit about the trade items and the things that were brought out. Uh, and he's sitting here looking through his his wares to see what he can trade for what. Uh, the pelts. Pelts uh-huh. and furs. And then... And back there we have Jebediah Smith. He is one of the 100 that came west for Ashley. Okay. He is also one of those that became very famous for many things. He was the first man to ever cross the continental United States from St. Louis to the West Coast, the first to travel up and down the West Coast, the first to cross the Sierra Madres, and uh, the first to uh, discover the South Pass route from the eastern side. Okay. And was he on the Lewis and Clark expedition? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, the one that you may be thinking about is John Coulter. Okay. And he is the one that uh, made that famous run. Okay. And the thing that's kind of interesting about Lewis and Clark, I think, is they made two uh, two years through territory that the white man had never traveled through. And granted, he had a lot of help from the uh, Native Americans and stuff that were here. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I think they only lost one man in their whole uh, yes. expedition, which is just phenomenal. Uh, yes, that was Sergeant Floyd. When you're when you're traveling like that, to, to not lose more men. Uh, yes. And it was Floyd. Yep. Okay. That is cool. And this here is Captain Benjamin Bonneville. He was uh, in the military, but he was on leave at that time, doing some trapping for himself. When the military asked him to come to this area to do some uh, map making and gathering information about this area. And he was also to find the tar springs that Smith had found. Okay. And uh, it took him 10 to 15 years to find that springs. And uh, he is also the one that led the first wagon train through South Pass. Okay. And and are these wax uh, minuets or whatever you want to call them, are they life-size? Is this, is this about uh, yeah, what he what size he was? They're pretty close to it. Pretty close. Okay. And here he is holding a, a stretched out beaver pelt and a long gun. Again, a, yeah, these were all black powder. All black powder, which and muzzle loader, which means you shoved everything down the barrel. And and uh, we talked a little bit about percussion and flintlock in our Mountain Man uh, Museum yeah. uh, interview. Okay. Oh, before we forget this thing, uh, this here is the bull boat. Uh, the mountain man adapted it from Native Americans. They used it to cross rivers, and they were constructed of one to two bison hides using the branches and pitch from the trees. 
and they were very dependable. And uh, mountain men didn't use it to cross rivers. What they used it for was to uh, bring their pelts down from the mountains when the rivers and streams were just too low for a canoe. Okay. And these bull boats, uh, like he said, were made out of buffalo hide stretched over willow. And really kind of neat. They, they hold, what, probably just one person? Or, or well, just, the, you said it was just the hides. Yeah, and uh, it depended upon uh, how big you built it. Because uh, as far as I know, I was told they, were, they could hold up to six. Six, six people? Men. Yeah. That's, that's a big boat. Yeah, wow. it's bigger than this because this one here, I think, was used when uh, hauling pelts. Okay. Or just pelts. Okay. Wow. And this here is Father Pierre de Schmidt. He is a Belgium, and he is the first Catholic priest in Wyoming. Uh, the Native Americans heard about the Catholic religion, and they wanted to learn more about it, so they sent word back east to have somebody... Uh, come and tell them about it. Uh, many of them were getting ready to, but Lee Schmidt was the first one to come up. And he is one that converted thousands of Native Americans, and he helped start churches, schools, and missions. Okay. And? And his, he had an uh, Indian name by the name of Blackrobe. Okay. And did, uh, did he, is he one that Whitman was here too, right? Uh, Narcissa yes, Whitman, and, yes. and the Whitmans are the ones that ended up getting massacred. Is that correct? Uh, not or in did, Wyoming. Or did he? Uh, no, uh, he. I haven't read all of his story, but uh, he didn't. He didn't die in Wyoming. Uh, and the Whitmans, when uh, his family was attacked, is up in near Oregon. Was out in Oregon. Okay. <clears throat> and these guys were coming through. Uh, prior to the wagon trains coming through? Uh, well, no, the wagon trains were already coming through, but uh, he is one of those that approached on foot. Okay. Okay. And then you've got a nice big canoe here. <laughs> yes, this is the Wyoming Centennial Messenger. Uh, this is relatively new compared to the others. Uh, this was built in 1986. Okay. In Chicago, using the native materials. And uh, it measures 27 feet long, 54 inches wide, 240 pounds empty. Wow. It could weigh up to 2,000 pounds when it's fully loaded. And, and this our, is an exact replica of something that they were using at the time? Uh, very similar. Very similar. And what was the count, uh, cannon mounted up at the front? Uh, well, back uh, when this was built, it was used for, they say, self-defense. But I think mostly it was used for alarm clock. To wake okay. up the other members. Okay. And the symbols here all stood for different things, such as the feathers represented the crew, stars represented the states, eagles head represented the United States, the uh, mountains in the background re represented the Wind River Range, the blue waves represented the river that they had to travel, the brown in between those waves represents the basin that we're in. And those four colors represent the four directions or the four winds. Okay. Wow, that's a nice, a nice canoe. And then, of course, you've got fur pelts all in there. And yeah. And, there's a bear and, and a fox and uh, paddles uh, and yeah. 
And it was also nicknamed David's Boat in honor of the mascot. He okay. didn't make the trip because he, shortly before it happened, he passed away due to brain cancer. Oh. Okay. And this here is a nomad camp. These were used at rendezvous where they were easy to set up and take down. And it fixed the trapper with the furs that he tanned. And, and uh, this, this section of it is, represents the uh, mountain man, Hugh Glass, married to the native woman, Mountain Lamb. Okay. And we talked a little bit about Hugh Glass and Revenant and some of that when we were at the Mountain Man Museum, too. These two museums tie together really, really well as far as the trapping and the, the Mountain Man era and all of that kind of stuff. If you're going to go see one, you ought to see them both because this, this wax museum puts everything into total perspective. You've got wax figurines that are about the size and, and everything of people along with camps the way that they would have been. Yeah. And uh, all of that kind of stuff. Now, this little teepee you got, it would be, I would consider more of a range tent. Would that be really small, just replica for this display, uh, or, or would it be... Uh, well, it would probably be bigger. Okay. But, but this right one here is about six foot in diameter, yeah, uh, which would be well, big enough it, to sleep in. If we did have it to its uh, real dimensions, it would probably hit the ceiling. Okay. And right here, if you want to learn how to hunt for beaver, these are all you have to do. Okay. All the steps. Yeah. Okay. They show you how to set the trap and and skin the beaver out and get the hide all ready. And this is a beaver pew press. This is oh. Jake's. Okay. So what we're looking at here is a, is a box made out of poles. And it's set up so that when you get your beaver hides all uh, skinned out and ready to go, you can compress them down into bundles. Yeah. And, and they used, what, 60 pelts per bundle? Is that 60 right? 60 pelts, and they weighed around 90 pounds each. And then they could compress that bundle down into a size of maybe 2 by two foot by 18 inches and stacked uh, 2 foot high maybe? Yeah, about that. And that way there they'd be compressed and, and easy for the uh, traders to take back east when they, after Ashley here yeah. got through buying. Yeah, and the horse could carry two bundles. Okay. And right here is Kit Carson. He was another one of the, well, he was one of the 100. Uh, he was married three times. Third time he was married to a Spanish woman. Uh, she was 15 or 16 at the time. She gave birth to eight children for him, and at the birth of the last child, she passed away. A year later, he passed away, and he was a very uh, trusted uh, guide and uh, constant companion to John C. Fremont. Okay, and and he did a lot down in the New Mexico, southern Colorado area, Taos, and some of that area, correct? Uh, yes. Now, did he spend a lot of time in Wyoming, or...? Well, he seemed to have, because uh, he had enough time to learn some of the languages and dialects. Okay. And he was one of those trusted scouts for the military and guide. Okay. And then we got Fremont. 
John C. Fremont was a very detailed map maker, uh, explicit report writer. His biggest problem was he was very arrogant. He had to have things done his way. Uh, twice he was warned by Carson not to cross the mountains in the dead of winter. Twice he failed. <laughs> he failed because he froze out? Uh, well, he couldn't get through the mountains. Okay. And that's who this, the county, Riverton is in Fremont County, uh, so is Lander. Well, a lot of the places were named after him because after all, who else was named the places except for the map makers? <laughs> there you go. We got Fremont Peak, we and, got Fremont Lake, we've got a lot of Fremont stuff around yeah. here. And uh, when, when much of his exploration was done on ru rubber raft. Uh, one year... He was warned not to put his raft in the Platte River because it was just too wild at that time. But he didn't listen, and right after putting his raft in, it immediately capsized, and he lost two years of records and maps and most of his equipment. And the one that warned him was Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger, okay. And so where did you get the rubber raft? I, I didn't know um, rubber rafts were even a thing back then. We've talked about bull boats and yeah, canoes and some of that. He, but. he was the first man to ever have one. And he was the first man to ever ride the Platte River in a rubber raft. Until he tipped it over and lost everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Bridger, he was considered a teller of tall tales. Uh, he is one that uh, told everything that he saw when he was in Yellowstone, such as the geysers, the uh, thermal hot springs, and the boiling mud, and the stinky smell. And people called him, that's when he got the name, A Teller of Tall Tales. They didn't believe him until they saw it for themselves. And he was also married three times, and one of his wives is supposedly the daughter of Washakie. Okay. And that's Chief Washakie. Yeah. And Chief Washakie's big around here. He's the one... Uh... Well, not around here, up for Washakie way. Because you're in Arapaho country. Okay. And, and Washakie was, was a Shoshone. Okay. And, and the and the Arapahoes and the Shoshone don't get along real well? well. Uh, You're going to tell me more history on this well, than what no, I've ever uh, heard. We get along uh, fairly well. Okay. Uh, there are some disagreements, but usually we get along pretty well. And what about the the politics of, of the reservation where you guys have to get along? Or, or is the reservation divided? Uh. Well, when it first got, when the Rappers were put on the reservation, they didn't get along with the uh, Shoshones. And later on, they started getting along fine. And then our business councils kind of do like the Republicans and Democrats. Okay. So in other words, they, they don't really get along. <laughs> well, they're uh, frenemies. <laughs> yeah, right. Frenemies. Okay. And this here is Thomas Brokenhands Fitzpatrick. He was another one of the first of the 100. Uh, he got the name Broken Hand when he was being pursued by natives. Uh, he got to a bluff, jumped off his horse, and jumped off the bluff. When he jumped off the bluff, his gun discharged and it totally destroyed his left hand. Oh, wow. And he is the man that first uh, found the boy that started the Friday family. Okay, explain more on that for me. Uh, well, returning from uh, going back to St. Louis, he 
came across an orphan Arapaho and he didn't know what to call him so he called him Friday because that was the day he found him on. Okay. And uh, he took him east and gave him a, uh, helped him get an education and then when he returned to his uh, tribe he's the one that helped them to do for themselves. Okay. And so how did he do with his with his uh, broken up left hand? He was well, still able to trap and do all of that kind of stuff? Well, as far as I know, because he was all, uh, he was a trapper and uh, an Indian agent. Okay. That's what many of the trappers became, were either Indian agents or scouts. Okay. And then here we've got Chief Washakie. Yeah, he's standing in front of a butte called Crowheart Butte. On the top of that butte, he fought the Crow Chief Red Robber, or Big Robber, for the hunting rights in this area. The winner got to hunt in this area all he wanted, but the, other, the losers had to leave. And they say that he killed the Crow Chief, and uh, after killing him, they say he cut him open in his heart. Oh, kind of vicious. Well, that's... Uh, that's what they say. So, and huh. when uh, he was asked about it years later, he said, "At the time, he young man and young man do foolish things." <laughs> he was kind of known as a as a rather wise chief, though, uh, from everything that I've I've kind of heard. He's he's very well revered. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking to the wrong tribe here. Yeah. <laughs> And this here is the Larry Peace Talks. In 1851, uh, many of the Plains tribes were invited to Laramie to have a peace treaty signed. And the ones attend well, some of those attending were Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, and City Bull. And many of the Plains tribes, the Cheyenne, Arapahoe, uh, Crow, and several others. Uh, Waski was also in, uh, encouraged to attend. He was encouraged by uh, Bridger, uh, DeSchmidt, and uh, Carson. Okay. And But he didn't sign because he wasn't a Plains tribe. He was a mountain tribe. And when uh, the treaty was uh, the only ones hunting in this area would be the Native Americans. As long as and they would no longer attack the wagon trains, telegraph lines, or the Pony Express riders. And that agreement was broken several times by both sides, several times. Okay. By both sides? Yep. Okay. And so we've got, we've got Chief Washakie, we've got... Uh, Red Cloud. Red Crazy. Cloud, Sitting Bull, and Crazy Horse talking to... A white guy sitting in a chair. Yeah. Uh, We've got Indian drums here that are rawhide stretched over. Yeah, they, these were used at uh, ceremonies, uh, social events, uh, well, in communications, and usually they were uh, important to get messages across to others. Okay. Another very nice display. And then you've got an Indian headdress over here. Well, this is Shoshone war bonnet. The feathers do not denote the rank of 
It, uh, all they tell about are the deeds, such as kill an enemy, steal a horse, and count coup. And hanging beside it is the coup stick. Okay. That's what you use to touch a live enemy. And, and then you didn't have to kill them? Is that what the story well, is? Well, no. Uh, you could kill them afterward, but usually the greatest honor was touching the enemy while he was alive. Okay. And is that is that original or is that? Ah, uh, yes, that is a that real is one. A, that's a real one. And it doesn't have uh, a, a lot of the the native headdresses like the one that's on display here. Did they color the feathers uh, like that, or, or no? See, like this one? these that one those are real feathers. This one here is uh, artificial. Okay, it was made up. And those were eagle feathers on that original. Uh, yes. Yes. Very nice war bonnet and then we've got a couple of native americans sitting down and, next to their drum and they may be either planning a uh dance war party or just talking okay this is really neat all these all these wax figurines and, and seeing these people the thing that's cool about it is it puts everything into kind of actual perspective when you go to these museums and all you see is a wardrobe inside of a display, it's really hard to get an idea of, of uh, actual size or, or whatever of these people. And, and I've seen things like Buffalo Bill. It looks like the guy's about five foot tall and weighs maybe 100 pounds if he's, if he's soaking wet. And you don't really get to see the proportions of what these people are. And, and these wax figurines look very realistic. And I'm assuming that the, there was a lot of research done on the facial well, features uh, and some of that. Ah, uh, yes, it was mostly by those that uh, we got them from. They are okay. the ones that did all the work. Okay. And this here is Brigham Young, the successor to Joseph Smith. Uh, Young is the one that was responsible for bringing over thirty thousand Mormon immigrants to the Salt Lake Valley. Okay. And he did that in three stages. First stage, got to a certain area where they'd plow and till the land. Second stage, we'd plant the seed. Third stage, we'd harvest and store the food for the following wagon trains. And he was, and he was also instrumental in getting statehood to Utah, if I if I'm correct. Uh, yes. Okay. And many people were told that uh, they all came over in hand carts, but the ones that came over in hand carts were the poor European Mormons. Okay. And because of that, that's when they started losing a lot of people. Well, you can't carry much in a, as far as making a trek for, that's going to take you three to six months. Yeah. And, it's hard to carry that much in a, in a hand cart. Yeah. And shortly after entering the Nebraska-Wyoming territories, that's when they started losing people because of the harsh climate and weather. And there was a, a big loss that the... Uh, uh, Willie of the Willie Handcart Company. Uh, yes, and the Martin. And yeah, and, and I'm I'm interested in going over and doing something at the museum there, uh, not far from Independence Rock, where yeah, uh, all of that took place. Yeah, they lost around 145 people there. Wow. I just didn't walk it. Well, the whole Oregon Trail or Immigrant Trail, however you want to call it. Well, there, with those, there were two different trails. Uh, you had the Oregon Trail. And then you had that Mormon Trail. The Mormon Trail, uh, as you can tell from this, it was separate from the other trail because uh, Young did not want his wagon trains 
to get, come in contact with the other white trains because the other people did not like the Mormons. Okay. And because that's why they left east to come to Utah. Okay. And about what was the distance between the two trails? Maybe two, three miles? Uh, yeah, about that. Okay. And so they followed basically the same rivers, the same uh, trail outline. And, and wasn't Bridger extremely instrumental in, in mapping out how the Oregon Trail was supposed to go? Uh, or yes, was it he somebody was. else? Uh, well, it was a combination of Bridger and uh, some of the trappers. Okay. And because of them not following the Oregon Trail, they had to go up difficult roads such as Rocky Ridge. Okay. So they made it harder on themselves just to keep separate and, and probably reduce hassles. Yeah. Okay. And then, oh, didn't even see them standing behind there. They've, yeah, got, they've got some corn growing up in a fence, and, and there's, uh, I guess there's two uh, yeah, Native Americans standing behind yes, there. Yes, they are. And many people will walk right by it without really paying attention to it. I don't know who came up with the idea, but it seemed like uh, it brought that to a lot of people's attention. They were wondering, why is the corn there? And why is it there? Because the Oh, because of the okay, natives. Because the natives are hiding behind it. Yeah, but that was the primary crop for them in the southern states. Was it as crucial up here in the northern states? or uh, No, back east... Uh, they used to be farmers, but then after moving west, they became hunters. Okay. And many people do not recognize the jackalope. Oh, there's a jackalope? Yeah, there is a jackalope. That's one of Wyoming's uh, rarities. So, yeah. <clears throat> and the, 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 the jackalope is a jackrabbit with deer horns on it. Yeah. And many people, some people don't believe it, some people do. That's why I tell them, that's one of Wyoming's myths. You can believe it or not. Yeah. I've, I've never seen one in real life, but I, they must exist, because I see them hanging on walls all over the place. Taxiderma specials. Oh, and what is that? That is a wagon jack. A wagon jack. Okay, I'm looking at a, at a piece of wood that's kind of in a triangular shape. And there, one side has a bunch of notches in it and a handle on the back. And that must have been for getting underneath the axle and having the leverage in order to get that axle off the ground so you could repair your wheels. Well, I think it may have been used to put on the edge of the wagon to lift it up. Okay. So that you could get to the axle. Okay. So it went off of the box instead of off of the axle yeah. itself. That's, that's kind of an interesting jack, interesting piece. Changing a flat tire was a little bit different back then. Yeah. Uh-oh. And this here is the hanging of Cattle Kate. Uh, she was married to Jim Averell. They were married in Lander. Uh, they moved back east to a location south of Casper, but north of Rollins. And they both made the mistake of filing on separate land claims. That didn't sit too well with six of the big ranches back then. Especially Albert Bothwell. Okay. And uh, this when, was kind of back when they were having the cattle wars. Uh, this was towards the Johnson County Wars. Okay. Now, was this 
prior to the Johnson County Wars? Or uh, just yes, after? it was. It was prior to. And it was part of all that uh, uh, severe winter that killed so many uh, uh, cattle, or was this prior to that? Prior to that. Prior to that, okay. And, and Cattle Kate was known to have... Uh, well, that was a title that was given to her by the uh, newspaper. Okay. And the ranchers, they wanted to get rid of her, so they called her and her husband Cattle Thieves. And, and there's a lot of controversy as to whether or not they really were. Is that correct? Uh, well, recently uh, there were some evidence showed up to show that they weren't. Uh, the bill of sale for her cattle did show up. Okay. And uh, But this was years later. And when they uh, captured them, they took them to uh, it's either... Uh, Hell's Gate or Independence Rock. Okay. That they hung them up. Oh, they were that. Okay. And, I didn't know where that had happened. And they, they weren't really hung, more like strangled. Okay. Because when uh, they were struggling to get the nooses off their necks, Kate slipped and fell, and when she fell, her feet barely touched the bottom or touched the ground. She was still kicking and screaming, trying to get it off, but she was still alive. And one of the ranchers pushed Jim Averill off, and he suffered the same fate. And Kate Watson was the first woman ever hung in Wyoming. Okay. And so we've got a, a depiction here of a tree with Kate and Averill. Uh, Avery. Avery. Okay, with ropes around their neck. And we've got two other ranchers standing there waiting to watch the activity, I guess. Yeah. Wow. And many of the crimes that they say she did were done by two other women. Okay. But she's the one that paid for it. Yeah. Huh. And this was kind of a vigilante thing too, right? Uh, it wasn't well, It wasn't. Legal. No, it wasn't uh, a vigilante. It was more like just uh, an act of greed, okay. wanting the land. Okay. And this here is Butch Cassidy and the old old-time outlaws. Okay. Butch Cassidy, his real name was Robert Leroy Parker, and he was very well-liked in Fremont County, especially Lander. And he was friends with uh, Harry Longball, better known as the Sundance Kid. Okay. And we got three of them sitting here in jail. And, <laughs> well, we don't know who the third one is, but we always say it's... Uh, Tom Horn or one of them. Okay. And so we got a, a jail scene with, with those guys in there. I heard that uh, uh, Butch Cassidy was really liked, like you said, amongst all the locals and stuff, but he was a pretty gregarious guy and outgoing and talked to a lot of people. And he, yeah. was, he was one of those kind of Robin Hood guys, from what I understand, uh, yes, that would steal was. from... Wells Fargo or whoever happened to be coming across with their stagecoach or train, and he wasn't greedy when it came time to paying for his meals and and uh, hospitality. He was more than generous, and, and people really liked him. And Yeah, and he did have a ranch up near KC. Right, by the hole in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I've heard, well, you can't help but hear stories from him when you're around here. They've got... Uh, the bar in the 
in the museum there in Thermopolis. That's oh, uh, the whole hole in the wall bar, and and Butch Cassidy supposedly sat there and drank. And uh, every so often, I think once a year or so, they hold an event where you can sit down and have drinks at the bar with him. I don't know if they're actually serving alcohol or if it's just uh, Coca Cola, but yeah, uh, I, I do hear that they have that event occasionally there. Now we've got a couple of... Well, uh, these, these are two separate stories. This one here is Lieutenant Caspar Collins. Uh, during the Civil War, he enlisted in his father's company, and they were already stationed in the West. They were there to protect the wagon trains, telegraph lines, and Pony Express riders. And toward the end of the war, uh, many of his father's men's enlistments were almost up when uh, they were ordered back east except for him. And when his enlistment was almost up, he was ordered back east. And when he got to Platbridge Station, uh, the commanding officer there ordered him and 25 men to go find and rescue a wagon train and escort it to the uh, Sweetwater Station. And shortly after leaving that station, he was entering the foothills when he saw he was about to be attacked by Sioux and Cheyenne warriors and he ordered a retreat. While turning around, he got wounded in the leg with an arrow, and uh, many of his men were wounded and killed during the retreat. And while he was still looking back, he saw one of his troopers knocked off his horse. He went to save him, but he was too late. Next day, the commanding officer ordered a company of soldiers to go recover the bodies and go rescue that wagon train. When they recovered the bodies, they saw that they were scalp mutilated and their eyes were punched out. And when they discovered the, uh, rescued the wagon train, they saw all the wagons were on fire and there were only six survivors. Wow. And the railroad decided to name that site in his honor. And when they did, they misspelled his name. <laughs> Instead of C-S-P-A-R, they spelled it P-E-R. That's how Casper Wyoming got his name. Okay. Wow. Interesting. And then we got George Armstrong Custer. He is briefly in Wyoming. Uh, he is even said to have signed some rocks up near Dubois. Oh, really? Yeah. He was briefly in Montana, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, many of the people that come to this one, they always say he was uh, very egotistical and uh, glory vein. No one could find anything good to say about him. The only good thing about him was he was very well loved by the animals. And I'm not talking about the domestic animals, I'm talking about the wildlife. Really? Yep. Animals would come up to him, he'd pet them, and he, even, and he even took up taxidermy. Huh. I, I had never heard that aspect of uh, him. Wow. Okay. And we got Buffalo Bill. Yeah, he is standing over the body of yellow hair or yellow hand, depending upon who's doing the translating. And he is holding up the bonnet saying, this is the first scalp for Custer. They say he was good friends with Custer. And Cody was a Pony Express writer, uh, trailblazer, no, no, trailblazer, translator, uh, guide, 
and but mostly he was a showman. Yes. He also did supply, I think he was a meat supplier for like the railroad or something yeah. like that. That's how he Buffalo got his name, Buffalo Bill. I yeah, he was the one that killed uh, 4,280, I think it was. Buffalo, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. That's a lot of buffalo. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you said, he was a Pony Express rider. He was, he was a showman, definitely a showman. And the thing that you kind of learn about Buffalo Bill as you spend a little bit more time, you know, in different places is that he actually was quite the man. I mean, he, he rode how many miles on one of his, uh, let's see, it was 241 miles in 20 hours and 40 minutes. And that was on the Buffalo or on the Pony, uh, Express. Pony Express. But they say he had to because his relief rider was killed. Right. Mm. And so he kept things going. I mean, the guy the guy was a real man that, that was larger than life. And as time went on, he became the showman that was larger than life. Yeah. But from what I understand, he treated his people pretty good on his, on his shows and, and that type of stuff. And had a lot of Native Americans that he took on his shows. And yeah. they got to see the world. Yeah, and he only showed uh, Sitting Bull one year. Okay. Because after that, the agent out in his reservation wouldn't leave, let him leave. Really? Yeah. And these are our ladies of first in Wyoming. Esther Hobart Morrison, she was the uh, suffragette. She is the one that helped to get the women the right to vote, the right to hold office, the right to own property, the right for equal pay and the right to sit on a jury trial. And she also became Wyoming's first female justice of the peace. She was in, uh, see, Atlantic City or South Pass City. And, uh, oh no, Farson. She was in Farson? Yeah. Okay. And the thing that's, that's really interesting about this is it has her lifespan from 1840 to 1902. So she did all of that stuff prior to 1902. Suffrage wasn't even close at that time. Uh, women owning land and, and governorships and a lot of that stuff was unheard of in most states at that time. Yeah. And one of those that benefited greatly was uh, Jeanette Ogden Sherlock Smith. She was married twice, and she was also a member of the Women's Temperance League. And uh, after the death of her second husband, she became very wealthy. When she inherited a hotel and dry goods store, and she became even wealthier when she started selling alcohol. <laughs> and their family, we just did a, a podcast up at South Pass City, and their family kind of ended up buying most of South Pass City and, and owned a lot and their family lived up there. There's a lot of history that we talk about in that podcast uh, with the South Pass City history. Yeah, the part about her selling alcohol, that is what I heard from uh, one of the PBS station. They are the ones that did a story on that uh, area. And okay. That's where I learned about her. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> she, they own the, the hotel and, and everything mm -hmm. up there at South Pass. 
Oh, I was going to say there was 14 saloons up there at, at one point in time, is what we were told. Yeah. And so the alcohol must have been a desired commodity. Yeah, there was no churches, but yeah. there was 14 bars. <laughs> yeah, and Nellie Taylor Ross, she was really uh, elected to fulfill her husband's obligation as governor. Uh, she was... Uh, the first female governor of Wyoming, the first female governor of any state in the Union at that time, and she barely beat out the woman that was elected in Texas by two weeks. Oh, really? I didn't know that Texas was that close behind. Yeah, and uh, she was not re-elected, but she did be, uh, get appointed as the head of the U.S. Mint uh, when Fort Knox was first built. Oh, really? And she held that post for 20 years. She died at 101 in Washington, D.C. Wow. I did not realize that second part. I knew that she was the first female governor in the United States, but I didn't realize that she was in charge of the U.S. Mint. Yeah. Wow. Okay, now we get now we get to this story. Big news, George Parrott. Uh, he was a notorious outlaw. Uh, he was a horse thief, cattle stealer, Killer, robber. Train robber. And bank robber. And he came from back east. And uh, any crime done at that time that could be done, he did. Including and, killing a couple of uh, police officers. Well, that happened later. Oh, did it? Yeah. Uh, during uh, the attempt of his last robbery, which was going to be, he was going to weaken the rails so he could rob a train. That attempt failed. Him and his gang escaped to Montana, where he was captured. On the way back, the mob broke him out and tried to hang him. He begged for his life. The mob took pity on him and gave him back. And when while in jail, he attempted a jailbreak. During the jailbreak, uh, that's when the deputies were killed. And the mob broke him out again. And they attempted to hang him, but they didn't do it properly. He ended up swinging, and while swinging, the rope cut off his ear. And the mob took pity on him, gave back the law, and he was finally hung the third time. And after that hanging, Dr. John Osborne, Dr. John McGee, and the female assistant Lillian Heath performed his autopsy. During the autopsy, they cut off the top of his skull to see if his brain was different from others. Seeing no difference, they put him back together again, except for his skull cap. The skull cap Osborne gave to Lillian Heath. Lillian Heath used that for pins, buttons, and jewelry. Years later, she donated it to the Pacific Railroad. And she also became Wyoming's first female physician. And Dr. John McKee became very well known for his cosmetics work, especially during the Civil War. Dr. John Osborne wasn't quite done with Big Nose George. What he did was he skinned him, took the skin off his chest and legs, sent it to some place in Colorado where it was tanned. When he got it back, he made a medicine bag and a pair of shoes. And the shoes he wore to his inauguration as the third governor of Wyoming. Yeah, and those shoes are star on display. Yeah, that's what they look like up there. Yeah. Just, just amazing that uh, that you'd skin somebody and make shoes and a doctor's bag out of it. But well, it's been done before, except they didn't do it with. Uh, well, they did it with uh, a murderer 
They killed a farmer and his wife back during the colonial days. Okay. They totally skinned him and made belts and wallets out of his <laughs> skin. Okay. And from what I understand, they were doing some road work in uh, Rollins at one point in time, and they found a 55-gallon drum oh, with yeah. a bunch of bones in it. Yeah, that and was, it turned out to be Big Nose George. Yeah, that's where Dr. John Osborne buried him, <laughs> behind his building. And then they put a road over the top. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of an interesting story, old Big Nose George. And this here is Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, he's the one that uh, created the national parks, national forests, national monuments, put millions of acres of forest trees under federal protection, created the water conservation districts and the forest service. And the one story everybody likes, even though it has nothing to do with Wyoming, is about Roosevelt and the bear. Uh, he went on a hunting trip in Louisiana for bear. The guide there couldn't find any bear except for one, which was a poor sickly bear, which he caught tied to a tree and led Roosevelt over to it. When uh, Roosevelt saw the bear, he told him just turn it loose. Bird got out to the public, and the toy maker made a toy and named it after him. And there we got a little teddy bear along with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and we have a black bear that's full mounted uh, cub. That's probably what yeah. 100 pounds, yeah, about maybe a, about 100. So he'd just be a young cub. Yeah. And again, a very nice display. Did uh, that display? Did the uh, bear display come along with the wax museum or is this one that uh, well, Jerry did? It might be one of those that Jerry did. Okay. Because uh, I don't know what all, which all ones he did. Oh, and then we got this Charles one. Russell. Charles Russell. And we got, a, we got uh, Charles Russell sitting at an easel with the paint in front of him. And, wow. Yeah, at the age of 15, he was sent to a sheepherder's ranch in Montana as punishment for not joining the family business. Uh, he didn't have the aptitude to be a cowboy, so he took up painting and sculpting. He ended up giving away or selling cheaply his paintings and sculptures. One year, a painter came up to him and told, or not a painter, a rancher came up to him and told him a sad story about uh, his cattle going through a very bad year. First, it was a very severe drought. Second part was a very harsh winter. So Russell painted a picture, gave it to the rancher. The rancher had copies of it made, and he sold them, and that helped him make it through to the next season. That painting was waiting for a Chinook or last of the 5,000. Okay. Wow. And, and all these that we have here are reprints. Okay. We and could. I heard some, I, I read a book, uh, I can't remember what the name of it was, but they were talking about Charles Russell and coming out. He used to t paint on buffalo hides and did a lot of his paintings on buffalo hides and, and would hand them out to friends and stuff also. Yeah. But they said that he kind of had a photographic memory that he could picture an event in, in cowboy life, whether it was at the chuck wagon or whether it was the cowboys roping the wolf or, or whatever it was. And he could go back home and paint and come up with the exact detail of the way the mountains were and everything else. And, and he was a fantastic painter of, of Western history. Well, he had kind of the same kind of uh, brain as uh, Bridger. 
where you could draw your map in the dirt in full detail. And he did this all from memory. That's probably why he was such a great trail maker. He, he yeah. established many of the trails coming through here. Yeah. Oh, and then we got Thomas Edison. Yeah, many people don't realize it that he was in Wyoming twice. First time he was here is using one of the experiments to measure the heat of the sun during solar eclipse. After that experiment, he went to San Diego, California, came back to Battle Lake, Wyoming to do some fishing. And while fishing, his bamboo pole, bamboo pole broke. And when he got back to camp, he broke it up more, threw it into the fire. Later that evening, he's looking at the embers when he noticed one brightly glowing filament of bamboo still glowing brightly. He went back to his lab in New Jersey when he's doing another experiment when he remembered that filament of bamboo. And that's when he lit one up, burned it, and he watched it glow for $1,200. This, this would help him come up with his version of the incandescent light bulb. And he is also one of those that helped to make Cheyenne one of the first cities to be lit by electricity. Okay. So the discovery of the light bulb basically happened in yeah. Battle Lake, Wyoming. Wyoming. And Battle Lake is just outside of Encampment, Wyoming, which is right down on the Colorado well, border. Well, as far as I know, there are two Battle Lakes. Uh, what he... The place that it happened was Battle, Battle Lake Mountain. Okay, and is that close to Encampment? Uh, I know uh, the Encampment Museum has a display, and they, they lay claim to that. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've been trying to find that place on the map, and I can't, so I don't know where it's at. All I know is it's in Battle Lake on Battle Lake Mountain. Okay. Well, you might contact the museum there in encampment wyoming they may have more information i know that they that down there at that museum they do have a display uh talking about battle lake and and that type of stuff so. yeah and there is a plaque there telling about edison okay yeah okay well this is way good and back there are two hides one's a uh, male and the other one's a female moose and are they tanned? Yep. They're tanned. They're, that's, that's a lot of hide. Yeah, moose, are, moose are big animals. Yeah, they are. They are. They are the largest of the deer family. Okay. So where do we go from here? Uh, out in the back and to the... If it's too windy, if, you don't, if it bothers you, we uh, don't have to see the horse-drawn farm equipment. But we do have a homesteader's cabin and uh, Trapper's Line Shack. Okay. Well, let's, let's head on back and see what the wind's doing and if it's going to distort us and, and make things a little bit too noisy for us. <clears throat> Actually, it doesn't look too windy out there. No, it looks like it stopped, finally. Yeah, this isn't bad at all. <laughs> yeah, this one here is a thresher. It is one of two that are still operational. So this one still works. Yeah. And then we're talking an old thresher here. This is yeah. this was uh, uh, tractor operated. No horse. Horse. 
and it might have been operated by steam engine. Okay. And so the mechanisms and stuff all turn the change as the horse is pulling it? Yeah. And then the thresher, it takes the wheat or the grain, the, barley, whatever, and, and gets this. rid of the uh, outer stuff yeah. and just keeps the, the grain. Yeah. Wow, I don't think I've ever seen one like this. This is an 1886 New Racine Grain and Bean Threshing Machine. Very rare, one of two in the USA that is in this good a condition. Wow. That's amazing. And it's interesting how they were able to make the mechanisms work off of the wheels instead of having the pulleys and stuff coming off of the tractors or the three-point or the, yeah. the PTO is what I meant to say. And uh, they were able to mechanize that in order to be to where they didn't have to throw the grain and, and keep working it over with, with forks. Yeah. And that there is a grain wagon. For hauling beets and beans and grain. That's a good-sized wagon. It's got pneumatic yeah. tires on it, but it's got the old spokes like off of a Model T. Yeah. And, and it can, it flips over on its side. So, it's the side so it's a side dump. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And right here we have a walking plow. And a walking cultivator. Isn't that a cultivator? Oh yeah, cultivator. And then a couple of plows. Well, some of these I always get mixed up because some of the signs were lost. <laughs> oh, okay. And that one is what you use to plow potatoes. A potato digger. Okay. Then we got a manure spreader. It's, it's been called other things after different presidents also. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then uh, just kind of coming on down the line here, we've got a harrow and a cedar and another cedar and a set of discs and a cultivator that's horse-drawn with a seat on the back for the operator to, to work got uh, uh mower mower there we go boy that's your slipped in my mind and then we've got a rake well these are two separate rakes that one's a hay rake and that one's a stack rake okay hay. but that's for the old overshots and stuff yeah but this one here is a is a drop rake or wind wind rover oh well that's a wind rover okay then we've got another big thrasher, and this one here would be tractor operated. No, it's also steam. It's steam? steam? Yeah. Okay. Because it was uh, operated by, it had to be pulled by six to eight horses. Wow, that's quite the team. And right here is a Fresno. That's what you use to dig ditches or level fields. Right. And some of these are used to dig uh, ditches and canals. And they say, well, some of these may have been used when they built the uh, Wind River Canyon. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, let's take a look at the trapper cabin. Hey, we got another little house there. What would they use that one for? That is an officer's privy. <laughs> an officer's privy. <laughs> yeah. This was, was used at Camp Auger and Camp Brown. And Camp Auger and Camp Brown were later known as Lander. Okay. That's just a, just a privy. Oh, there it is. All of it. 
Yep. I, I've used those before. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> They're not too bad in fall and spring, but they can get awful Winter's... warm in the summer and, and awful cold in the winter. Yeah, and all these are old-time farm equipment. We've got horseshoes and saws, picks, an old cream separator, a bunch of hammers, several different styles of jacks. Yeah, an old sweet axe. And this is Trapper's Line Shack. Trapper's Line Shack. You're welcome to go inside. Go on in. It might be a little bit warm in there. Yeah, it's getting a little bit warm. And inside this line shack, we've got which which was would be a cabin that they set up as they were running their trap line. And this would have been after the Mountain Man era. Uh, well, more than likely, would no. Have. This was used during the Mountain Man era. Uh, they would uh, use these to spend the night in to continue their line, or checking their line traps. Checking their lines. Okay, I was thinking that the mountain men stayed more in uh, well, temporary camps and some of that. Well, you have to take into consideration the length of the track line. Some of them could go 10 to 20 miles. Some okay. could go even further. Wow. And in here we've got a little, a little camp stove. We've got a beaver hide that's on the round with a carving of a bear in it in the fur. And we've got a coyote skin hanging off of the wall and a couple of traps and, and a table with some uh, utensils and cookware on it. Set of snowshoes. I'm sure that the snowshoes were really handy. Yeah. And uh, it's got the dirt floor. Ceiling's not very high. Uh, made, out of, made out of logs. And really a nice little... Uh, it'd be a comfortable place to have to spend the night. You yeah. might not want to live there forever, but... Yeah. Uh, very comfortable for, for a night. Has a little bed in it. This is all really, really nice. And then over here we have a homestead cabin. Again, it's log. It's got a it was well with a pump on it sitting outside. It was built in 1908. It was built in 1908. Okay. Oh, and this has a really nice wood stove in it, wood cook stove. South Bend Malleable. It has a bread warmer on top, and uh, there's a bed in here, and a trunk, and a table, and utensils, rocking chair. This is a nice little cabin. Again, yeah. it'd be awful crowded if you had uh, a wife, a husband, and, and well, four that's kids. The, usually there was a room upstairs. A loft upstairs? We, yeah, we took out the stairs because of the liability. And you moved this into this location? Yes. From, from elsewhere? Uh, this was on, built by the Givens family. Okay. And that was, uh, well, the Lugan brothers. Okay. Cool. Well, the closest thing you had to any kind of luxury was that. Oh, the oh. indoor privy? Yeah. Everybody needs one of those. Yep, a little bucket in a underneath the, the bed. 
served as a place so you didn't have to go outside. Yeah. Somebody had the privilege of dumping it every day, though, didn't they? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, this is nice. Do we have some other things we need to see? Uh, no, that was it, mostly. Okay. Very nice. Very nice museum. And I really appreciate you taking us on the tour. Oh, you're welcome. Let's go ahead and go on back up front. Chat with you and Iva here for a few minutes and, and uh, finish things up. Uh, during spring, uh, that's what the bears eat, especially the grizzly bear. They eat uh, around 30,000 of them a day. Anyway, I sure appreciate yeah. uh, the both of you taking us on this tour. This is a neat museum. Strongly encourage anybody to see it. It's in Riverton. It's right off the main road. Beautiful. Uh, you can go to their website. They've got a nice little website. Uh, you can contact them through there. Do you have what? What is your website? Uh, Wind River Heritage Center. Uh, okay. Wind River Heritage Center dot com. And you've got a gallery there that people can see some of these displays and some of that, or there isn't a lot of pictures there. Um, we're, we kind of just set an overview of what was here. Okay. So people have to come and see it. And that's kind of what that's kind of what we're doing here. Is um, I don't really want a lot of pictures or anything. I want people to come and experience this. This museum is is very educational. There's a lot on display. Uh, if you're on your way to Yellowstone Park, you can see what animals you're supposed to be looking for. And to be right honest with you, being from Wyoming, you'll see a lot of them outside of the park also. Uh, maybe even sometimes more outside the park than inside the park. And so you know what you're looking for, looking at, and the coloration on the animals to help you identify. Uh, my f first trip in Wyoming when I was a kid I didn't grow up here, unfortunately. My parents didn't live here, so I didn't get to. Uh, that, that's I consider their mistake. But uh, uh, my first trip through Wyoming, I didn't see much in the way of wildlife at all. And, and now that I live here, you can't help but see it. The antelope are everywhere on the side of the road. The deer, uh, coyotes, fox, uh, raccoons. Uh, if you're not seeing wildlife in Wyoming, the only reason you're not seeing it is because you don't know what you're looking for. And so, uh, I mean, heck, we even have pelicans here, yep. which just blows my mind when you see pelicans in Wyoming and seagulls and some of this other stuff. It, it's amazing the wildlife that we have here and the beauty that Wyoming really is. And I really appreciate your time today taking it with us. And uh, to finish off, I just want to say the world is full of wonder. Everybody needs to get out and explore, and everybody have a wonder-filled day. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?